and welcome to podcast number 16 here on The Voice of the Arts with your host, yours truly, Joe Weber. This podcast is going to focus on rhetoric, the power of effective and persuasive speech or writing. We'll begin with Kenneth Branagh's powerful delivery of the St. Crispin's Day speech from Shakespeare's Henry V. fighting men. They have full threescore thousand. That's five to one. Besides, they are all fresh. It is a fearful odds. Oh, that we now had here. But one ten thousand of those men in England that do no work today. What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland? No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. Brother, proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and grounds for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand at tiptoe when this day is named, and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall see this day and live old age will yearly, on the vigil, feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispin's. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in their mouths as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered. We few... We happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that thought with us upon St. Crispin's Day! Hey, 
waited that a busy life forgets the fishermen of England are working at their nets. In tiny vessels they defy the perils of the deep and scan the water's dreary waste with eyes that never sleep and when at night you safely lie in the blankets snug and warm the fishermen of england are riding out the was a song called The Fisherman of England, performed by Peter Dawson, an Australian baritone who was quite well known in Britain during the Second World War. Before that, we heard the speech from Henry V prior to the Battle of Agincourt. The Battle of Agincourt was fought on the 25th of October, St. Crispin's Day, in the year 1415, and was one of the many battles of the Hundred Years' War. England defeated a numerically superior French army making prodigious use of the longbow on a narrow battlefield. The French men-at-arms were packed in so tightly that the muddy battlefield and the weight of their armor rendered them useless and easy pickings for the English bowmen. Next, we're going to listen to American poet Heather McHugh read her poem about Giordano Bruni and a man in gray. What he thought. We were supposed to do a job in Italy, and full of our feeling for ourselves, our sense of being poets from America. We went from Rome to Fano, met the mayor, posed for the photographers, and served on panels. What does it mean, flat drink, asked someone. What does it mean, cheap date? Among Italian literati, we could recognize our counterparts, the academic, the apologist, the arrogant, the amorous, the brazen, and the glib. And there was one administrator, the conservative, in suit of regulation gray, who, like a good tour guide with measured pace and uninflected tone, Narrated sights and histories the hired van hauled us past. Of all, he was most politic, 
and least poetic, so it seemed. Our last few days in Rome, when all but three of the New World bards had flown, I found a book of poems this unprepossessing one had written. It was there in the pensione room, a room he'd recommended, where it must have been abandoned by the German visitor, was there a bus of them, to whom he had inscribed and dated it a month before. I couldn't read Italian either, so I put the book back in the wardrobe's dark. We last Americans were due to leave tomorrow for our parting evening then. Our host chose something in a family restaurant, and there we sat and chatted, sat and chewed, till, sensible, it was our last big chance to be poetic, make our mark, one of us asked. What's poetry? Is it the fruits and vegetables and marketplace of Campo dei Fiori, or the statue there? because I was the glib one. I identified the answer instantly. I didn't have to think. The truth is both. It's both, I blurted out. But that was easy. That was easiest to say. What followed taught me something about difficulty. For our underestimated host spoke out, all of a sudden, with a rising passion. And he said, That statue represents Giordano Bruno, brought to be burned in the public square because of his offense against authority, which was to say the church. His crime was his belief the universe does not revolve around the human being. God is no fixed point or central government, but rather is poured in waves through all things. All things move. If God is not the soul itself... He is the soul of the soul of the world. Such was his heresy. The day they brought him forth to die, they feared he might incite the crowd. The man was famous for his eloquence. And so his captors placed upon his face an iron mask in which he could not speak. That is how they burned him. That is how he died without a word, in front of everyone. And poetry. We'd all put down our forks by now to listen to the man in gray. He went on softly. Poetry is what he thought, but did not say.
That was Debussy's Girl with a Flaxen Hair, performed by Isaac Stern. Before that, we heard poet Heather McHugh read her own poem called What He Thought. And we're going to continue with a man well-known for his rhetoric, Winston Churchill, talking about the drumbeat of war building in Germany back in 1934. Only a few hours away by air, there dwells a nation of nearly 70 millions of the most educated, industrious, scientific, disciplined people in the world who are being taught from childhood to think of war as a glorious exercise and death in battle as the noblest fate for man. There is a nation which has abandoned all its liberties in order to augment its collective strength. There is a nation which with all its strength and virtue is in the grip of a group of ruthless men preaching a gospel of intolerance and racial pride unrestrained by law, by parliament, or by public opinion. In that country all pacifist speeches, all morbid war books are forbidden or suppressed and their authors rigorously imprisoned. From their new table of commandments they have omitted. Thou shalt not kill. It is but twenty years since these neighbors of ours fought almost the whole world and almost defeated them. Now they are rearming with the utmost speed. And ready to their hands is this new lamentable weapon of the air, against which our navy is no defense, and before which women and children the weak and frail, the pacifist and the jingo, the warrior and the civilian, the frontline trenches and the cottage home, all lie in equal and impartial peril.
We just heard the exquisite intermezzo from Pietro Mascagni's Cavalleria Rusticana. And before that, we heard a speech given by Winston Churchill before Parliament back in 1934, five years before Germany invaded Poland starting World War II. I'm afraid that when immersed in a serious subject for a while, my mind always wants to veer toward the humorous, and so we will stay on the subject of rhetoric, but wander over to my favorite humorist, Jack Handy, who will point out how so many famous quotes can be attributed to a single speech given by Attila the Hun. Attila the Hun's Greatest Speech Of what are generally regarded as the ten greatest speeches of Attila the Hun, the following is perhaps the least known. However, many notable writers and statesmen have borrowed from it throughout the centuries, and it is now generally considered the greatest speech ever given by a Hun. Four score and seven weeks ago, we came into this land killing and raping everything we could get our hands on, and we did a good job. Never in the course of human conflict have so many been trampled so much with so few regrets. When we set out, all I could promise you was the blood, sweat, and tears of our victims, and also all their stuff. And I have given you that. I also promised you a rose garden, which I am working on. Our guiding principle is that a house divided cannot stand. Neither can a peasant although it's funny to watch him try, and so we conquer. Our battle cry, damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead, has confused and frightened our enemies. I'm not sure what it means myself, but it seems to work. It's been fun to be a Hun. We enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of screaming villagers. But maybe you should ask, not who the Huns can kill for you, but who you can kill for the Huns. Some of you may have heard about the bad break I got. Last night, I was offered a bowl of dates for dessert, and I ate a date, a date which will live in infamy. It troubled my bowels throughout the night. Believe me, it was not some enchanted evening. Yet today, now that it's over, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And you know who the unluckiest men are? probably those prisoners over there in that cage. Finally, we stand at the gates of Rome. All roads, I have learned, lead to Rome. I wish I had known that before. That way, instead of wandering all over the place, we could have just gotten on a road and followed it here. It would have been a lot easier. I come not to praise Caesar, but to bury him. But he won't let me. He struts around on that rampart, sticking his tongue out at us. Instead, he should be rebuking his generals, telling them, well, this is another fine mess you've gotten us into. Caesar, tear down this wall, or at least open the gates, and we'll tear it down for you. And don't delay, as I told the Germans, ich bin ein crazy guy. Let me conclude by saying, friends, captured Romans and countrymen, Lend me your ears. I'm not kidding. Cut them off and put them in a big pile here, and I will use them on my rose garden. And now, please welcome a time traveler from the future. I hope I am pronouncing his name right. Newt Rockney. 
It is not known what Rockne said, although it is believed he referred to Notre Dame football player George Gipp and urged the Huns to win one for the Gipper. Rockne's time machine was then torn apart by the Huns and used as fencing for Attila's garden. Drake is in his hammock and a thousand mile away. Captain of their sleeping there below. Slung between the round shot and Nombre Dios Bay and dreaming all the time of Plymouth Poe. Yonder looms the island, yonder lie the ships, with sailor lads are dancing heel and toe. And the shorelights flashing and the night tide dashing, he sees it all so plainly as he saw it long ago. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's gonna do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago, and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know, that Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives, and my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. It's interesting how everyone remembers Jack Nicholson's speech from A Few Good Men and nobody remembers any of Tom Cruise's. The villain turned out to be far more memorable than his protagonist. Nicholson's speech borrows from one attributed to George Orwell. We sleep safely in our beds because rough men stand ready in the night to visit violence on those who would harm us. Orwell, however, said something quite different. In his 1945 essay, Notes on Nationalism, he wrote of pacifists, quote, those that abjure violence can do so only because others are committing violence on their behalf. And that certainly is a thought to reflect on in the midst of the protests and the rioting that we have witnessed most recently in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. That the dice are loaded Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor 
the rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the boat is leaking. Everybody knows the captain lied. Everybody got this broken feeling. Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolates in the long stem rows Everybody knows Everybody knows that you love me, baby Everybody knows that you really do Everybody knows you've been discreet But there were so many people you just had to meet Without your clothes And everybody knows Everybody knows Everybody knows That's how it Everybody knows 
That's all I've got for podcast number 16. Thanks for keeping me company. This is Joe Weber saying so long here at the Voice of the Arts.